Hello, and welcome back to Research Matters, a podcast produced by UNICEF's Office of Research Innocenti in Florence, Italy. I'm Kathleen Sullivan, a communications specialist with UNICEF Innocenti, and today we're talking to our resident expert on all things digital for children, Daniel Carterfeld Winter, about children and screen time. Is screen time really bad for child development? And is what kids are doing on screens more important than how much time kids are spending on screens? What does the evidence really say? Dale Rutstein, our Chief of Communications, will also join us today as we discuss recent scary headlines about screen time for children and unpack what recent research is really showing us. Welcome, Dale and Daniel. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kathleen. Um, So um, let me start off, Daniel. Um, uh, Tell us, before we get into the research, tell us about where you come from, you know, how you grew up, start from your childhood. So I'm uh, from Sweden, that's where I grew up with, uh, with my family in Stockholm. Um, and I, I grew up as um, part of the first generation of internet users. So my family was kind of an early adopter of technology in the home. Wow. My parents had computers from work and we got an internet connection really early on. What were they doing that gave them computers in the home? It was just regular, they were both, uh, they're both economists. Um, and they just got access so that they could work from home, essentially. But of course, I would also, you know, sneak on to that computer to to play games, to connect to the internet, and you know, start to explore the the online world as it was kind of um, becoming popular, growing. Like this was in the this was in the very early nineties. Wow, that is early days. Yeah, it is early. Right. So, um, what were your early academic interests? So, I mean, it all really starts with my, with my childhood, right? And the, the fact that I spent so much time with the, with the computer and on the internet, you know, I was playing games, I was meeting new people, I was communicating with, you know, people that would live in countries that I had barely heard of. And that was, you know, for me, really, it was amazing, really, to have that kind of opportunity from an early age. And it made me really, really interested in this question of the impacts of technology on society. Because already back then, you know, people were starting to get a bit worried about the effects of technology on children, my parents included. And it is not as extreme perhaps as today, but, but already then we could definitely see people starting to think about these questions. This is so interesting. So now, it's not unusual for kids to be interested in the internet and exploring the world and, and they immediately figure out what they can do with the internet. Even, you know, we've seen images of children in very remote parts of the world who don't even know what a computer is. Within hours, they can understand the internet. So how did you go from being an early avid user to thinking more deeply about it, like the implications of it? Yeah, so this, I mean, it it all kind of came naturally, right? Because I I kept hearing from people in society that, oh, this is is bad for kids. My parents were saying, oh, you shouldn't do this so much. You're addicted to this technology. You should go out and play football and run around and do useful things, you know, things that we keep hearing about today. Right. And so this question kind of stuck in my mind. Um, And it was when I started studying psychology for my undergraduate that I started digging a little bit into these questions. And I was still remember for an, an, an essay that we were writing, I, I decided to actually look at this, the, the, the literature on, on technology effects. And that's how I started, you know, really exploring what was out there. Right. And I found 
um, that the evidence that was out there, this was, um, I think, late, um, no, early 2000s. Um, I found a bit of evidence already on, on the effects of technology on children, and I was dismayed because it really didn't match my experiences as a child at all. Did you feel like you had to prove that some of these assumptions were wrong, or did you want to really find out without any prior assumptions what are the effects of online screen time on, on children's development? I mean, it wasn't that clear-cut to me at the time. Mm. I encountered this body of literature on technology addiction. More of a curiosity right? than... In the beginning, yes. But then when I, I encountered this literature and I saw how researchers had studied this, I was not happy with that because I felt that it was a complete mismatch between their approach and my experiences as a child. They were asking questions, and they still ask the same questions today, that from a perspective of a child, from a perspective of a gamer, let's say, they just don't make sense. I find this really interesting from UNICEF's perspective, where we're, everything is within the framework of the rights of the child. Yeah. So in a way, what the picture you're painting is a child becoming an adult, but also feeling like their voice needs to be heard and their pers unique perspective uh, is not really being factored in to what science is doing. Exactly. I mean, that, that's exactly it. And, and I, I grew increasingly frustrated with this because the, the, as the debates around children and technology were kind of becoming more prominent in society, there was the same problem. No one was talking to the kids. Okay, so... Let's talk about some scary headlines that really prompted us to have this podcast in the first place. Headlines such as, have smartphones destroyed a generation from the Atlantic? And is screen time bad for kids' brains from the New York Times? The New York Times article refers to a 60 Minutes episode and well-known ABCD study for adolescent brain cognitive development, which reported that heavy screen use was associated with lower scores on some aptitude tests and also to something called accelerated cortical thinning in some children. The New York Times actually does point out that the data is preliminary and that it's unclear whether the effects are lasting or even meaningful. So, so Daniel, what can you tell us about these scary headlines and what is the evidence really telling us about the effects of screen time on kids? So there is a, there is a problem today and it's been a problem for a long time that um, both media and researchers report on research in ways that are not entirely accurate. Um, and if we take, you know, we, there are a number of reasons for this, but if we look at, for example, the Atlantic piece, um, which talked about a relationship between social media use and suicide, um, the problem with that piece is that the data actually contradicts the main message of the article. Because if you look at the article um, that was published alongside this a scientific journal article, Actually, what the data suggests is, is the opposite relationship. So basically, the researchers of this piece, they have found a significant effect between time spent on social media and an increase in suicide. But the effect is so small that it's practically insignificant. And that actually shows, to me, that there is no effect, no significant, no considerable effect between social media use and suicide. So the message is actually the opposite. Wow, I find this is, this is shocking, actually. So I just want to check up on that particular instance. Is that a case of scientists misrepresenting the data in the way they're analyzing the data? Or is it a case of the media 
um, misrepresenting the actual results that they're, they're, they're reading in a scientific paper? I think it's, it might be a little bit of both. I don't think in the journal article that this is uh, reported in a disingenuous way. I don't think so. It's more a case of not really um, looking at the findings for what they are. Um, because they do, they do see an effect, right? And the effect is negative. But the thing is that any effect needs to be compared to everything else within a child's life that affects them. Like, so say, for example, Dale, if you don't have your coffee this morning and I survey you on your mood later today, um, you might report that your mood was, you know, a tiny, tiny bit lower because you didn't have your morning coffee. I think it definitely would be. Yeah. However, <laughs> there are many, many things beyond coffee that would have a much stronger effect on your mood that day, right? Right. Yeah, I get you. Um, and that's the similar thing that's happened here. There are more important things than social media. This is a very serious problem because if the Atlantic, you know, a highly reputable um, magazine, which is considered, you know, sort of a paragon of fact-checking, you know, and responsible journalism. One of the last outposts of responsible <laughs> journalism. Right, yeah, they're disappearing fast. But if they're... Uh, what was the headline again? Have smartphones destroyed a generation? Right. Strong. And then they're, they're reporting that there's a link between social media use and suicide. That means millions of parents are going to believe that, yeah. right? And yet, so, but why are we at this point? Why is science so unavailable to the policy making and thinking to the extent that the Atlantic gets it that wrong? It's a good question. I mean, I think there are, there are different factors at play, but one thing that keeps coming back to me is the fact that, well, there are, there are two things in parallel. First of all, we have a lot more research being published these days than before. There's been a massive increase in the number of uh, journals that publish scientific articles. You're talking very recently, right? Um, fairly recent, yeah. yes, but with the proliferation of online, um, online journals, etc. It's, it's quite easy these days to get an article published. And whereas before, you would have quite rigorous systems of peer review. I mean, peer review was seen as the kind of benchmark for high quality. Today, I would argue that this is not the case because each journal that relies on peer review has to ask academics to do these peer reviews for free in their own time, right? There is no monetary incentive here. And with, as the number of journals increase, academics get you know, increasing number of requests to do this which means they don't have time. So either they will decline or they will do it really quickly and you know, not to the kind of degree that peer review demands. And so we have this situation where more and more low quality articles kind of slip through. They get published. And I think the public and perhaps journalists um, kind of need to catch up to the fact that peer review, just because something, something right. is published in a peer reviewed journal doesn't necessarily mean it's of high quality. Um, but to go back to your, I mean, to, to put it in very simple terms, when you do statistical analysis, very simple, when you do statistical analysis, you're typically interested in two things. The first is whether there is a significant relationship between two variables of interest. That basically tells you the likelihood of the result you're seeing being a product of chance, more or less. Um, you're interested in that because that shows you whether this relationship um, is likely to actually be true, right? The second thing you're interested in 
is the size of that effect, the strength of the relationship, going back to my example with your, your coffee and the mood, right? And not often, but, but sometimes researchers stare themselves blind on the significance. But significance in and of itself is not a very interesting number. You have to understand the strength of the association between two variables to be able to say whether this is something we should worry about. And are you saying that in this study linking screen time and suicide, that technically the significance met a certain low threshold, but that in reality that number is still very low? The, the size of the effect right. is very, very low. Yes. yes. So we actually understand very little about um, the probability of a child reporting suicidal thoughts by looking at the time they spend on social media. Something like we understand maybe 1%. Of the, of the suicide score. And 99% is explained by other things that have nothing to do with social media. Okay, so let's, let's go back to this, uh, this bigger picture, Daniel. Um, we understand that you know, there, the research um, the, is, is not necessarily as conclusive as many of the media reports and headlines would, would want us to believe. And so there's, it tells us that there's a fair amount of emotion or a fair amount of sort of prejudice, um, you know, uh, myth, you know, that's creeping in. Um, tell us about that. And, and what are the dangers? What, what are the and going back to children's lives? OK. And the reality of the Internet, you know, what, what can you say about that? I think there is a pretty big danger in that. Um, I mean, we, we've seen already, if you look at the reactions from the Atlantic Peace, you know, all of a sudden you had government or parliamentary committees talking about policy changes, thinking about whether they need to restrict children's use of, of social media in schools, for example, whether you should ban phones in schools. The tech giants started pushing out these products for parental control or products to control your own screen time or track it and so on. So already from that one piece of research, we saw some pretty significant changes. It's just that those changes, in my view, were kind of in the wrong direction um, right. because of what the study actually showed. Right. So I think there is a, there is a very real danger that we, we kind of whip up um, a frenzy that leads to knee-jerk reactions and responses that are too quick, not based on the evidence, and therefore they don't serve children's best interests. Right. And what really puzzles me is that so few people actually go out there and ask young people what they think. Yeah. You know, when, when, they, when they talked about banning smartphones in schools, did someone go out and ask children whether they thought this would solve the problem or not? Right. Well, that does raise an interesting question about another Atlantic piece where apparently high school students were saying they think there should be a limit on screen time. So in this, this Atlantic piece that's a couple years old, I believe, um, Students were agreeing, you know, they're spending too much time online and um, that they, they themselves thought that there was a negative effect. What, what do you think about that? No, so I think if it's done in this way, it's great. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we know a lot from, from particip uh, research on participation in general that as soon as you engage the, uh, the stakeholders, they're going to be more, you know, and you ask for their opinion, you involve them in the decision making, they're going to be much more receptive to whatever decision is made after that, even if they disagree. Mm. So if, for example, at a school level, you would have those kind of conversations with children and say, hey, we as teachers, 
we're kind of worried about this, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of using your phones in classroom, like, what can we do about that? Like, is there a way for, for you to help us out so that we can have a better classroom climate and then work with the kids so that they themselves get to develop solutions? That's the best approach. Right. But that's very rarely how it's done. So let's go back, I, 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 you know, after, we, after picking apart some of these headlines. What does, you're doing a lot of research on this and you're surveying a lot of research in a very robust way. So what can we actually say about children's screen time or children's time online? So if we look at the best available research that we have today, we can see that screen time, as it has been measured, does not seem to have noticeable effects on child well-being. That's that's the bottom line. There are many other factors. Wow, that, that okay, seem wait, to matter a lot that, more. that's that's huge because I think if you just went on the street and you asked ten people, does screen time have a negative effect on children? Ten, all of like, virtually everyone would say yes, yes, it does. So, I mean, that's. But part of it is also, it, it, it's in a way, um, it's, it's a matter of preferences. Because when we do these studies, these surveys, we, we try to measure well-being to the best of our ability. But this is not to say that screen time does not displace other activities that may have value to children. Like the, To my knowledge, there haven't been studies looking at what screen time displaces. So you might easily imagine that if, hypothetically, screen time um, displaces let's say, uh, reading books. And there's, right. there's a strong value placed on reading books, and we think, as a society, you learn a lot from reading books. Then that would have some sure. kind of negative effect, but we're not necessarily going to capture that. Right. So let's survey. go back to this, this idea uh, that no, no negative effect on well-being. I know you've looked at different dimensions of well-being. So can you yeah. unpack that a little bit? Talk us through that. So I did an evidence review for UNICEF, um, towards the end of 2017, where I looked at the, the literature and the evidence, what it said about the effect of spending time online on um, children's social relationships, their physical activity, and their mental well-being. Um, and kind of across the board, I mean, we, we see a number of problems with evidence base. Let's be clear about that. The evidence we have, or let's say had at that point, um, was not really good enough for any uh, conclusions. It was not good enough to underpin policy, for example. Broadly, we saw that um, there isn't there isn't a very strong effect. The best, the highest quality studies show that there there is an effect. Going back to what we said about the Atlantic piece, there is an effect. It is negative and very very small, which means that if we want to think about policies or ways to improve child well-being, we would probably be better off looking at other things like family relationships children's school environments, how, you know, their community, what, the, what do the communities look like, what opportunities do they have? Things like that would probably be, be more effective. So what are the potential pitfalls of this sort of um, emotional response? Um, because policy is being made on the basis of some of these very small um, effects. So w w what, are some of the, what are some of the risks of that? Well, the risk is, first of all, that we make the wrong decisions. So we actually focus on problems that aren't really that big of a deal in the long term. And I guess kids are getting curtailed. I mean, they're just yes. getting banned from the Internet. Yeah, and this, and this um, 
And this obviously leads them potentially to lose out in many important areas of life when you have that kind of restrictive response. Communication, education on screens. Because I think one thing we haven't touched on is the quality of what children are using screen time to do. And And that may not necessarily be, you know, each kid is using screen time differently. And, and, and is there a research that's being done on the quality of uh, screen time or, or what, how kids are using the internet versus how much time they're using online? There is research being done on that, but usually that's not how the studies that look at well-being outcomes have done it. But right. they're moving in that direction now because it's becoming very clear that we can't just stick with this concept of time because actually it tells us very little about what's going on. You know, you can spend five hours and you can have a great time. You can spend five hours and it can be disastrous. Obviously, whatever your experiences are is going to impact your well-being differently. But when we look at this in kind of an aggregate way, the evidence doesn't suggest that, you know, even if one child might have a very bad experience, generally children as a group do not seem to be harmed by spending time on the Internet. So we need to move towards understanding the, the content they encounter, the experiences they have, and so there. See, this is something I wanted to, to explore a bit, because um, in the rush to sort of curtail or prevent or control or, or uh, snoop on children's online activity, um, are we harming kids in a way? Are we preventing them from uh, you know, things that could really help them? Yeah, I think there is a very real risk of that. I think there is a really interesting discussion going on in this space that, you know, some people say that, and when presented with the fact that we don't have enough evidence yet, they will say that, you know, we need to apply this this precautionary principle. And so we should restrict internet use because actually we don't, you know, the evidence is not good enough. We don't really know. Um, so we should probably cut them off now just to be on the safe side. But I would actually argue that we should look at it the other way around that if we want to apply the precautionary principle, we should probably let them be on the internet quite a lot because it's when we cut them off when we might actually subject them to potentially negative experiences because they lose out on communication, participation, learning, education. They grow up with a kind of disadvantage because they don't know how to use this medium which is critical for their future. So if if we're saying that the internet and screen time is an untested pharmaceutical drug, we're still saying that the benefits uh, that we've, we know exist today still outweigh the potential harm that we don't know about it. If we say that, although I'm not sure given the addiction discourse that I would make that, um, <laughs> that I would draw that parallel, but, okay. but in a way, yes. I think so far we, the evidence we have, which is flawed, still doesn't show us that there are considerable negative effects. This does not mean that we shouldn't try to understand what experiences children can have online that are negative. I think we should be completely open to the fact that things can happen online that are detrimental to children. Really very negative. But to get there in a kind of useful way, I think we probably need to move away from this idea of screen time as a concept altogether. We need to drop that. What would you prefer to call it? I wouldn't look at time at all. I would move towards content. I would move towards experiences, trying to understand what difference the connection children made online make you know, in their lives. Like we, we need to look at what happens 
in right. the digital space. That's one of the most important things of the Global Kids Online project that we're doing here yeah. to actually focus on that. I mean, I, I get I, I, I get freaked out when my iPhone reports to me at the end of every week what my average daily screen right, time the was. New screen time what is your average? I haven't used it. I, I, oh, this um, is embarrassing. It's very I embarrassing. I don't know if I want uh, to. <laughs> I listen to a lot of podcasts online, so I think my number is artificial. But it's, it's a good couple. It's quite. <laughs> it's 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 over mine's, six hours. Mine's two hours a day. Oh wow. Okay. Two. Oh, a, two hours. Yeah. That's not very much. I have a I have a one year old baby at home, so. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm. I'm yeah, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I mean, actually. No, I mean, I'm. But that that's a really important point, Kathleen, because. I, what I would suggest to society in general, thinking about things like screen time, is that we should be a lot more worried about how, how parents spend their time on technology, more than kids. There's another headline about this, actually, I think also in The Atlantic, about children oh, because, noticing their parents yeah. on their phone and mimicking their behavior. Yes. And this, this is the thing of parents just completely being absorbed in their devices and not paying attention to their kids. That, I think, is a far bigger problem. Than kids spending time on technology. Wow. What kind of research? Is anyone doing research on that? Very little. I actually, I, I know some studies that look at um, parents of very young children, but I, I think the focus is still typically on the children. Right. And there are reasons for that. It's because, you know, we know they're going through really important like developments at, an, at a young age. But the thing is that if the parents are looking at their phones throughout that developmental period, instead of you know, playing with their kids or at least being there for them, that is something that I think could have much more negative consequences than anything screen time can do to a child. Mm, so, I mean, there's two things I think I want to get into before we finish this. It's fascinating. We actually need to do part two and I three of I think we're going to have to do a follow-up on yeah. this. But, Brace I mean, yourself, Daniel. <laughs> so so just, just again, because we really want... A lot of things we do are really for researchers, but I think this is a podcast that's going to be a really interest... It's going to find a lot of interest for people who don't have so much research background. So to the parent who's confused, right, who's hearing all these things, is concerned, sees their kids spending a lot of time online um, and maybe, you know, what do you, what should they be taking away from this discussion? Like, what, what kind of advice can we give to them? I think the, the only safe advice at this point is um, to suggest that they just engage with their child as much as possible. You know, think technology is there. It's going to be there. It's important that kids get to learn to use it because it's important for their future. It shouldn't dominate their lives. I don't think that's good. If it would do so for some periods, I don't think that's a disaster, looking at the evidence we have. And the most important thing is is quite likely going to be the relationship between parent and child. And in fact, that's what early analysis of Global Kids Online data from six countries is showing. Family relationships is the number one predictor of positive child well-being. And we should be supportive as adults. I think there is this tendency to be controlling, negative, restrictive. I don't think that's the best way to engage with children on this topic. Right. We need to support. We need to engage. I mean, this, that's a that's a good uh, segue to a final point, maybe, um, on um, this idea of actually involving children more concretely in data gathering and research. You mentioned early on that this is not being done, and we're not doing a really good job of that. So 
how can we do that? And, and like, what are some of the methodologies that we could be using to, to actually get those voices into the, the findings? Yeah, I think this is, this is critical. I mean, going back to where we began, this is one of my greatest motivations because I, I don't see children's voices represented enough. It frustrated me when I was, you know, uh, adolescent or young adult. And sadly today it still frustrates me because we're not quite there. Um, what we try to do here um, at UNICEF, at the Office of Research, is to do research directly with children. So step one, at least for us, has been to speak to the children, try to get their voices heard, amplify them, you know, at the national levels, at the global levels, um, and also involve them in things like questionnaire design. That's something that we have done for the Global Kids Online project, something we're going to do very seriously for an upcoming project that we have in the pipeline to actually let children determine you know what are the important questions to ask how should they be asked and and then from that we will go out and we will speak to children about it and that's just it's just another way of collecting the data that matters to them and then we can represent that in our research in our advocacy uh, hopefully in, in policy asks Great. Thank you so much for that, sharing that insights. Unfortunately, I think that's all the time we have to talk about this today, but I think we'll definitely have to follow up with a, a part two on, on digital research. Two? Fully well, available. Fully available. <laughs> Great. Uh, so thank you all for joining us, and thank you especially Dale and Daniel for such an interesting conversation about research on children and screen time. For more information, you can follow UNICEF Innocenti's research on children and digital rights on our website, www.unicef-irc.org, as well as our joint program with the London School of Economics, Global Kids Online, on globalkidsonline.net, and also following their hashtag on Twitter, hashtag globalkidsonline. You can follow Dale and Daniel on Twitter as well, at Dale Rutstein and at Winternet. W-I-N-T-H-E-R-N-E-T. And also all things UNICEF Innocenti on Twitter at UNICEF Innocenti. Thank you and see you next time. Thanks a lot, Daniel. Thank you.